0: Well, it's a new year, and with the new year comes a host of hopes, dreams, resolutions, and anxieties. It's in the new year that people tend to be the most open to assessing where they are and where they hope to be, and where have they been in the last 365 days, and where do they hope to be in the next 365 days. It's the onset of a new revolution around the sun that inspires both evaluation and vision, self-critique and dreaming. And that's what makes the letter to the Colossians such an appropriate, relevant letter to read at the beginning of a new year, is because this letter is inviting us to evaluate, to self-critique, but then to also dream what this church can become in the new year. Where have we been? What has God done? And what do we hope God will continue doing? What things should we make a priority in our daily lives as believers together, a body of believers together? All these questions are answered in this letter. According to Paul, this is is your basic summary of Colossians, God has worked among his people in Colossae. He will keep working among them in the future and we should be praying to that end. He will remind us of the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus' person and work. And because Jesus is supreme and because his work is sufficient, we no longer have to slavishly placate to the will and spiritual regulations of men, right? We don't have to be fearful of men anymore. We don't have anyone else to please but God. So now... We are free to obey God in every facet of life because we have died to sin and been raised with Christ. Now we can serve our families as God intended. You can join in God's global work. You can walk in wisdom towards outsiders. And so in light of all this, with all that kind of a a summary there where it talks about the sufficiency of God and his work among his people— and the fact that we are now free, free from the regulations of others, we don't have to be fearful of them, and we can now f- truly obey God in our marriages, and our lives together. Colossians is the perfect primer, for some of you primer, perfect primer for those looking for, how, for wisdom to live in this new year. If you listen carefully to the letter of Colossians, everything you need to know about the next 365 days is here. Because it's in Colossians that we find a gospel-centered life and a call to a gospel-centered life. Now, my job is to open this up and to uh, and to begin this series that is going to go on all the way into March. And it is a great joy to get to open up this series for the last time for this church. And as a pastor who's on his way out, I can tell you that Colossians contains every hope that I have as a pastor or as a soon-to-be former pastor of this church, has every hope and dream and desire that I could ever have for the church here in Ovilla. And so, with that, let's open up. The letter opens with the conventional greeting. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father, By highlighting the fact that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus and that his ministry is by the will of God. This isn't just, these aren't just empty words. This is Paul drawing attention to his own authority here that has come from God. So what he's about to say, what he's about to tell us how to live, all of this is from God. So when he talks about husbands and wives, this isn't just a marriage guru giving you a few tips, right? This is a man called by God, sent by God, to deliver you God's message, so that you can know how to live your life in a way that honors King Jesus. He wants everybody to understand that this letter that you hold in his hand, he's just the messenger. But this is the message that King Jesus has for his church, for the believers in Colossae and for us. Now, if you don't know where Colossae is, it was located in Asia Minor, which would be today today's southern Turkey, right? So far from a Christian place. Um, back then, it was just like Philippi, Galatia, Ephesus. It was a city of Gentiles, idol worshipers. And that may not seem all that important to you, but... Consider the fact that Paul is writing to Christians in Colossae. That's amazing. It starts to show how the gospel has spread. We have these idol-worshiping Gentiles who were sacrificing chickens and goats in in idol-worshiping temples, who hated each other, were braggadocious and prideful, who were far off from God, had never even heard of the promises given to Abraham, and now they're being called holy ones, faithful brothers in Christ. How can a Jew like Paul and a Pharisee at that? I mean, this is a this is a high-tier elite Jew at that, how can he call Gentile Colossians brothers in Christ? Well, as Paul explains in the Ephesians chapter 2. God has worked to tear down the dividing walls of hostility, bringing far-off Gentiles like the Colossians into the same family as the Jews who were not so far off but were still outside because they weren't in Christ at the time. He's brought these two people groups together into the same household of faith. He's making this international community filled with every ethnicity, every tribe, every language to become together into the family of God. And the fact that Paul as a Jew, as a former Pharisee who hated Gentiles is writing to Colossian believers it's just one small evidence that God is doing that work. And now we have Texans reading the letter to the Colossians. If Paul were still alive, he might just scratch out Colossae and put Ovila in it. We're those heathen Gentiles that are now called holy ones and brothers in Christ. God is working to bring together people from every tribe, nation, tongue. And he just, just in case you don't get the point, he adds onto it the blessing, grace to you, Colossians, and peace, shalom, from a former Pharisee Jew, Paul, shalom. Why? Grace to you and peace from God, our Father. Not my Father, not your Father, Our father. How beautiful is that? One family, diverse, spread out through the entire Mediterranean world. One in Colossae and one a man from Jerusalem. And yet he's able to call these really different and weird people brothers in Christ. Why? Because they have the same redemptive father. In 2023, you may have another year filled with exploring the differences between you and the people in this room. You guys might actually disagree. If it, you're anything consistent with the years past, then you will disagree with each other at some point while we're here. Maybe over decisions of who uh, who's going to be the next pastor. It may be over decisions of what paint's going to go on the wall or or what carpet's going to go down. But here's the thing that gospel-centered churches remember. Whatever minor tertiary disagreements they might have, we are together, brothers and sisters, in Christ with one Father. He's not my Father, though there is a personal element to it where I can call him my Father, God my Father, But as a a member of the body in this church, he's ultimately our father. You and I have just as much access to the father as anyone else. And because of that, we have a common bond that goes beyond any of our differences goes beyond any of these tertiary matters, goes beyond politics, goes beyond economics, goes beyond social theories, goes beyond any of these different opinions that we might disagree on. This is the thing that knits us together where where all of us from all different walks of life can come together and all of us in this room because of faith in Jesus can say, God, our father. Just a beautiful thing. Your bank account, will probably look a lot different than mine. Your house probably looks a lot different than your neighbor's. Your car, your voting history, your background, whether you did drugs in the past or didn't do drugs, whether you have a divorce or two in your past, or whether you've been married to the same person for your whole life, The reality is, is we are all sinners saved by grace, placed in Christ because of the work that he has done, and now we all, because of the faith that we have in Jesus, can call God Father. That's just the beauty of this. I I just, I mean, sometimes I get critiqued, and when I start letters from Paul, and everybody's like, you're drawing out way too much from Paul's introduction here. I don't think so. I don't think so. Paul's not just writing these empty messages here. He means something when he says it. When he says, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, that's very intentional of what he wants you to see. There's a unity in the body of Christ that goes beyond geography. Colossian believers, bacon eaters though they be, can be brothers with a Jew like Paul. Because God is our Father. That's something to keep in mind in 2023. That's something to remember. I hate to say this to you, you're not always right. Your opinions, though they may be strong, don't always matter. What does matter is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the fact that the Father has sent the Son from heaven to save sinners like you. We may be different in a lot of ways, but the one thing that we're the same is is that we're sinners saved by grace and we're the undeserving children of God. And if you live in that and you are mindful of that, this church will flourish for generations to come. Churches die when they forget that. Churches die when they begin dividing over these tertiary things, but when they remember that the people in this room are not just people of different opinions, the people in this room are fellow children in the same family, it's when they remember that, that churches can go on and on and on. Now, we get to the content. He begins, so that's his introduction, that's just him saying hello. Now we get to content, and one of the things that we, th- one of the things we learn from Paul's letters is how to pray from the, for the church. If you if you've ever read through systematically through Paul's letters, Colossians, Philippians, even Corinthians, one of the thing you will things you will take out of it is how to pray for the church. Paul is constantly writing out his prayers for the church. Ephesians two, he's got one. Uh, in Colossians here, he he writes it out and he he writes it again and again and again. He writes out the same typical prayers, but he applies them to these people that he's writing. It's certainly one of the most important lessons from his letters that we can gain in how to pray for the church. For him, prayer is not just something we say, is it? It's not just saying, he's not just gonna write down, I'm praying for you, right? I'm tempted just like everybody else is. Somebody tells me they have a problem, the initial reaction is I'm praying for you right? For Paul, that's not empty words. He means it. He is praying for them. It's not just a reaction. It's an act of love. For Paul, prayer is love and devotion to God's people, as well as an acknowledgement that all things, God's people included, depend on God's continued work. If God doesn't keep working among his people, it's bad news bears for the church, if God doesn't keep working for his people, things will not continue growing in a healthy direction. It's out of love for the church of Colossae and the recognition that its future depends wholly upon God's ongoing work that Paul writes out this prayer. He's not just saying, hey, just so you know, I'm praying for you. He tells him what he's praying for them. And what a beautiful thing at that. It can be broken up into two basic sections. You get the first section, which is verses three through eight, and that's basically Paul's thanks for everything that God has already done for his people. And then you get the second section, which is verses nine through 12, which is his prayer for what God will continue to do. And one of the key lessons I think that we should learn as we look at these two sections is that prayer for the church requires two things consistently, both a thanksgiving for what God has already done, and then a petition for God to continue working. Thanksgiving recognizes the grace of God to his people in the past. And petitions, like the one that we're about to read here in a minute, they keep us humbly mindful that if God doesn't continue doing such work, that the future is very bleak indeed. Now, Paul highlights Paul, God's past grace. He says this in, the, in verse, uh, I think it's verse three here. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. When Paul thinks of the Colossians, his heart is moved to thanksgiving because he has heard, and think about this, Paul's on the other side of the Mediterranean Ocean. He's heard of their faith in Jesus and how much they love other people, how much they love fellow believers. There's a lot that we can't know about the Colossian church. How many members did they have? What was the state of their buildings? Who were their pastors? What were their names of their pastors? Who planted the church? We might know that. But who pastored the church after him? We have no idea. Uh, what size building did they have? How many, uh, did, did they have a good member care, you know, good, good guest service? We don't know any of those things about them. But one thing that we do know is that they were a church that believed in Jesus and loved other people well. Those are the two things that we know undeniably about them. That they, loved Je- they believed Jesus and loved others well. It's hard to imagine what a better reputation, what better reputation a church could possibly attain than the praise that it believes in Jesus and loves the brothers well. What a beautiful thing to say about a church. You see, a church that's rich but doesn't have that? A church that's big but doesn't have that? A church that's growing but doesn't have that? A church that's hip and cool and relevant but doesn't have that? It's not a healthy church. For, for Paul, the best thing to say about the church, the best reputation, is that they believe in Jesus and they love the saints. Now, where did they get this? It didn't just happen overnight. They got it because they heard about the hope that is stored up in heaven for them. They heard about the gospel. Throughout his ministry, and especially after his resurrection, Jesus revealed that the good news of reconciliation with God was intended for all nations. By God's design, the message would spread from Jerusalem on to Judea, to Samaria, and then to the rest of the world, as Mike just mentioned in the missions moment. The Colossian church's faith and love is evidence of that gospel progression, how the gospel is spread throughout the world, which as Paul says, is bearing fruit and increasing. He sees it, it's spreading throughout the world. It's going wide and it's going deep. And by God's grace, it's come all the way to Colossae of all places. And it was growing deep as it transformed idol-worshiping Gentiles into people of faith and love. These people who were so formally contrasts to the promises and walk of God that now they can be said to believe in Jesus and love each other well, this is a huge transformation for them. The Colossian believers demonstrate that the gospel plan, God's redemptive plan is steadily marching on. You may not always see it. You may not always be able to perceive it happening. But God's work is spreading throughout the world, reaching down to the very depths of the human heart, and it will not stop till every inch of this globe has heard. How beautiful is that? The fact of the gospel... Having a deep and wide growth throughout the world invites us to think about the rich heritage of the gospel's growth throughout the world. Paul Paul kind of dives into this. The Son of God took on flesh. He's the first cross cultural missionary, right? Talk about a short term mission trip. (laughs) Son of God took on flesh, came down to foreign territory, preached and proclaimed the good news. And what was the good news? Well, that he was going to die and not just for any reason, but particularly for your sins. And that through his death and through his resurrection, you would be given reconciliation with God. Once exiled sinners would be drawn near to the Lord himself and would be able to live with him in blessing forever. Whoever trusts in that gets to trade their death for life. Jesus then sent out his disciples. So Jesus came he died. He rose again, and then he sent out disciples to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem and Judea. And they went everywhere. We we think that they hit North Africa. We think that there were some of them that uh, hit Asia. Uh, we know for sure that the gospel was extending by the time that their discipleship was over. That the gospel was extending throughout all the Mediterranean world. Not long after, <coughs> excuse me. Not long after they were dispersed and commissioned to go, Jesus appeared to this arrogant little fool named Paul and saves him. It doesn't just saves him, he sends him. You're going to be my instrument to the Gentiles, is what he says. When Paul met Jesus, things got serious. Things really stepped up the gospel really began to spread. He traveled throughout the Mediterranean world spreading the gospel. At some point, he met a man named Epaphras, who, if our assumptions are correct, Paul is the one that told Epaphras the gospel. Somehow they met, somehow Epaphras became a Christian, and we think it happened when Paul met him and shared the gospel. And Epaphras doesn't just sign up his name to believe in Jesus, he signs up himself to become a co-prisoner with Paul. He gets so on fire for the Lord that he begins going throughout the nations, planting churches, and suffering in prison with Paul. We know for sure that he helped bring the gospel to Colossae. They heard, he says it here in Colossians 1, that Epaphras was the one that taught them the gospel. We know he went on to Laodicea and Hierapolis, and that he was planting and working in, among believers there. The gospel was spreading and spreading and bearing fruit and increasing. And little by little, people from all over the world were beginning to represent the people of God. Now, if you think about all the obstacles that were in place, it's amazing how the gospel ever spread. Sometimes we take it for granted, right? We live in the era of the golden age of missions, right? So names like Adoniram Judson or Lottie Moon or uh, you know George G. Patton, we 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 know with John G. Patton, we know all those names, right? But but this is the golden age of missions where we hear about missions on a regular basis. My goodness, you're in this church, you'll hear it on the first Sunday of every month, and then you'll hear it every Sunday after that in the foyer. Um, you're going to hear about missions a lot. But we sometimes take it for granted how odd it is that the gospel is reaching people from all over the world. First, just take the strange fact that we have a weird message. God took on flesh. Just stop right there. That's odd to people to hear. That there is a God is a bit of a stretch for them. But that that God then took on flesh and lived among us, that's odd. And then to say that that God who took on flesh died for your sins. And then he didn't stay dead, he rose again. And now you can have eternal life if you believe in him. I mean, it's a mind-blowing message. Who's gonna listen to that? And yet, Paul comes out there and the disciples come out there and they preach that message, the same message that is foolishness to the Gentiles, and a stumbling block to the Jews. And people buy it. They believe in it. They rest their lives on it. They die for it. They bleed for it. They go to prison for it. They suffer for it. They accept it wholesale. And it's just so strange how a message like that is going throughout all the world. And people are believing it. And then you think about the people that God chose to use to do that. We talked about Paul a couple of weeks back when we talked about uh, when we were preaching through the book of Romans. Unibrow, Paul, short, scrawny, big, crooked nose, ugly dude, only a face that a mother could like. Some kind of speech impediment, thorn in the side that we think is nearsightedness. Kind of had one of those. Um, personalities that you just kind of, oh, goodness, there comes Paul, right? One of those guys. God uses him to become the messenger of this foolish message. And people listen. How did the gospel ever spread? And then you think, okay, so it goes from Jesus who died, that's a stumbling block, to the rest of Jerusalem, to disciples who then go to the rest of the world, to Paul who also goes to Epaphras, Epaphras goes to Colossians, the Colossians spread out and they continue the movement and then there's this westward push and it gets to Spain and somehow it begins to spread throughout Europe like a wildfire and then people say, why not the Americas? And then they go over the seas and next thing you know, people in Ovilla, Texas of all places, are buying into that same message. There's only one answer that we have for how that could ever happen. You ready for this? Not strategies, not big massive missional endeavors like that. God did it. God did it. God made it happen. He used people. He uses means, for sure. But God is the reason God is the mover. God is the one that orchestrates everything so that the gospel will successfully extend throughout all the world. And how comforting it is to know that I get to be a part of a movement that I'm not ultimately uh, responsible for its success. I get to join in a work because Jesus has happily invited me in knowing that it's not resting on my shoulders. That's the tension we have as Christians is that we get to share the gospel knowing that we don't save anybody. We get to go to missions knowing that we're not gonna be the ones raising dead people from their sins. God is. And it's because God did that, Paul doesn't give himself credit. He doesn't say, hey, just so you remember, I shared the gospel with Epaphras and I trained Epaphras. I sent Epaphras to the He doesn't do any of that. He wants them to know there is one person who deserves thanks for all of that. I thank God, the Father of Jesus Christ. In the same way, when we pray for the church in our own day, we should be aware of what God has done up to this point and thankful for all that He has done oftentimes we get into the beginning of a new year and churches begin thinking about their goals. They just kind of shift into that. What new ministries are we gonna start? What areas in our community have yet to be reached effectively with the gospel? How are we going to improve our care for members and guests? Um, and all these things are important to the life of the church. I'm a, I'm a huge proponent, I know not all of y'all, I'm a huge proponent of New Year's resolutions and goals. I think a healthy person plans, sets goals, and strategizes how to do them, I think it 's a good thing I think it 's healthy to think about where you 're lacking, what your weaknesses are, and where you need to be strengthened, and then to actually go actively try to pursue that strengthening and i 'd go so far to say that a church who 's not doing that very thing, a church that 's not strategizing thinking and planning and setting new goals and and resolutions is probably a dying church. At best, it's an unhealthy church. At worst, it's a dying church. You do realize that, that when a church stops asking what new horizons might God give us to take the gospel, that's not a good thing. That's not a good thing. I'm not talking about bigger budgets, bigger buildings, or anything. like that. I'm talking about how can we take the gospel to new people? How can we share the gospel in new horizons? So I'm a big proponent of all that. I don't, wanna, I don't wanna diminish setting goals in the new year at all. I just think we get things out of order or we skip a few steps sometimes. Sometimes we jump straight into the planning and the goal setting and we forget to thank God for everything he did in the past. I mean, just, just think about it. Did you see God work in the last 365 days? Did you see God keep some of his promises in the last 365 days? Did people believe in Jesus at all in the last 365 days? Were we baptizing people in the last 365 days? Were there people sent out to share the gospel in other countries in the last 365 days? God did big things. And he deserves praise for that to stop and just thank God for all that he's done. And so before we lean into the new year and say, what all are we gonna do that's new? What all? Where are we gonna go? Let's make a plan. Churches have to stop. Paul, Paul teaches us that when we pray for the church, one of the most important steps to do is to first stop and praise God for what all's happened. He doesn't just jump in into a prayer of what God will do in Colossae, He thanks God for everything God has already done in Colossae. And it's in that that he's now set the stage for what God will do. As Paul teaches us, the Christian life is a balance of retrospective thanks and prospective anticipation. We look back at all that God has done and give thanks. And as we look back, we gain courage and wisdom for how to pray about the future. This retrospective prospective approach is modeled right here in this prayer for the Colossians. He gives thanks that of what God has done and then he launches into a prayer that focuses on all that God will do. Now keep in mind it's amazing how much of Paul's prayer for the Colossians church Colossian church Uh, overlaps with everything that God has done. So he's gonna thank, he's already thanked God for everything that God did do. Now he's gonna pray for everything that God will do. And it sounds amazingly familiar to everything he just prayed. It's not all brand new things. He wants God to continue doing these things. He said, I thank God that the gospel's been bearing fruit and increasing throughout all the world, especially among you. And then he's gonna pray, I pray that the gospel will bear fruit and increase in you that God will continue doing the same thing and continue uh, pressing the gospel and bringing these Colossians further up and further in into this great life called gospel-centered life. Here's Here's what he prays. This is the heart of his petition. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk worthy, in a, man, in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Now, the, no, the language of being filled with the knowledge of God's will describes a person who knows what God wants them to do. To be filled with the knowledge of God's will, these are people who know what God wants of them. But then he prays for wisdom and understanding. Okay, so they know what God wants of them, Wisdom and understanding tells them how to do it, how to apply it. I think it's interesting that he includes both of these things here. Because not just knowing what God wants of us, it's knowing how to apply what God wants of us. How to get off our keisters and do it. How to start living it out. How to start embedding this knowledge of what God wants us to do with daily life in practical ways. In this, Paul shows that the Christian life is more than just knowing what's right. There's a lot of people that can spout off what God wants. God doesn't want you to look at pornography in the new year. We know that. God doesn't want, to lose, want you to lose your head with someone in the new year. He doesn't want you to make semi-racist comments. He doesn't want you to become overly politicized in the new year and forget that he's in control of everything he doesn't want you to start stressing about your 5013 uh whatever the the uh 401ks or whatever whatever those numbers are ask robert um he doesn't want you to start stressing out all those he wants you to trust him for all things we know that but do we have the wisdom and understanding for how to apply that for how to do that and that's what he prays that through both knowing being filled with the knowledge of god's will And doing, having wisdom and understanding, that the Colossians will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now, here's a big question. How do we walk worthy in a manner of the Lord? What exactly should we be doing to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? I just want to be clear from the the front side. We don't we don't from the very beginning, we don't walk worthy in a manner of the Lord so that the Lord will love us, right? That's that's not what's on the table. Your salvation is not on the table. He doesn't say walk worthy in the manner of the Lord so that you'll be saved and so that you'll be good with God over the next 365 days. No, it's because you've been made right with the Lord. It's because of this thing that we call righteousness, justification, that God has declared us right with him. We're good with God. There's shalom. There's peace between us and God. We've been reconciled to him. But that demands a life change. We walk worthy of a man, of, uh, work, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, not so that we will be saved or right with God, but because we are saved and made right with God. We live out of our justification, not for our justification. We live out of being good with God, not so that we will be good with God. But he prays it as they know the knowledge of of God's will, as they have the wisdom and understanding to do it, that out of all of that, they'll be able to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And so what does that look like in practicality? Well, he gives you three things. First, walking worthy means bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Two resolutions for the next 365 days that should be on your list. Obey God more. Know God better. How simple is that? Just have it. Just have it. This, is, this is what godliness, godliness looks like. It's to have a commitment and a prayer that says, God, a successful next year will be if you lead me to obey you better and know you deeper. If in the next 12 months, you help me to bear fruit in every good work. Let me not speak ungodliness. Let me not think carnality. Let me not be angry at my brothers and sisters. Let me not be divisive. Let me love people as I should. Help me obey you. And in the process, help me know you more. You're so deep. You're so unfathomably majestic I could never ever hope to know all of you and so this year will you would just increase my knowledge of you so that I can say at the end of this time I know God more what a beautiful thing if this church's commitment over the next 12 months is just to be a church that together obeys God better knows God deeper It's important for you to find a new pastor. It's important for you to fill up the staff openings. It's important for you to faithfully give. All that's a part of obeying God, for sure. But it extends beyond all that. It's also important that you together live holy lives that reflect the truth of the gospel together. God forbid you find a new pastor, and yet in the process, bite and devour one another. God forbid that this church goes into the new year and you shirk out on your responsibilities to be a part of it. God forbid God has brought you this far, shaped you this far, given you this much grace to get where you are now and now you're gonna chuck out on sanctification because there's a better church somewhere. Don't do that. Obey God more, know God better. You do that, you'll have a great 365 days. Second, walking worthy means being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. What's beautiful about this strength, he prays for strength. We all wanna be stronger, right? Pray for strength. But he doesn't pray for economic strength. It doesn't pray that the Colossians budget will be met. <laughs> it doesn't pray for political strength that they'll be more influ- the most influential entity in the pol- political system there in Colossae. What does he pray for? Being strengthened with all power. Most of us pray for that, but we miss what's happening next. According to his glorious might for all endurance. You see, It's not just power it's not just strengthened with power it's not just living in god's might it's it's strength to do what to endure to endure what hardships suffering So often we pray that God will deliver us, give us the strength to overcome obstacles, give us the strength to climb mountains, give us the strength to overcome those who will oppose us. And sometimes the best thing that you should be praying is, God, give me the strength to endure all that. Your prayer should not be that this church or you yourself as an individual avoid suffering in the next 365 days. Your prayer will be that you'll be able to glorify God under it. That is a prayer worthy to be prayed. That you'll have the strength to endure. God, just give me all power to flourish in suffering. Give me wind in my lungs to carry the cross. Give me muscles in my arms so I can be nailed to it for others. Give me a high head that can bow low under the weight of the crown of thorns that you put on it this year. Strength, but not unmitigated strength, not strong, political, powerful, powerhouse men, not economic strength, not bloated budgets, big buildings, and lots of assets, strength to endure. That should be your prayer. And finally, walking worthy means giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. You understand everything that God has done for you. He has qualified you. You were unqualified in your sin, alienated from God, and God has qualified you to share in the inheritance. Well, what's the inheritance? We don't know. On one hand, it said the Scriptures say, "No eye has seen, no ears heard what awaits the saints." On the other hand, Scripture says all kinds of things about this inheritance. It's the earth. Inherit, like Matthew 5.5, 5, the meek shall inherit the earth. At other times, it's the kingdom. Other times, it's God's promises. Other times, it's salvation. But most explicitly, the inheritance is God himself. God has qualified you, justified you, is perfecting you so that you can stand in his blameless, perfect, sinless Presence. And the only appropriate attitude for that reality is to be thankful. How sad it is to see Christians, who God has done so much to bring them and their unworthy selves into his beautiful family, for him to qualify them for eternal presence with him, and they can't give thanks because they don't like the carpet color. They can't give thanks because they have criticisms about lesser things. They can't give thanks because they're too distracted by the person sitting in the sanctuary on the other side of the room. They can't give thanks because of what's happening in the world. In Paul's mind, a worthy life, a worthy walk, is one in which believers have a habit of giving thanks to God. So you want a good year? Here's what you should be praying. Lord, help me to know what you want. Help me to have wisdom for how to do it so that I can walk worthy. And Lord, here's how I want to walk worthy before you. I want to obey you better. And I want to know you more. And not only that, I don't want to be the the weak Suffer that I was last year that complained and griped every time I drug my cross across a, a, a rock. I don't want to be someone whose faith flickers every bad thing that happens. I don't want to be someone that, who's, whose trust and joy of you goes up and down based on what the news headline says. This year, Lord, will you give me strength to endure all of that so that I can have patient joy And Lord, while you're at it, make me walk worthy in a way so that I'm always giving you thanks. That I'm not complaining as much. But I'm praising you for all the ways that you have loved me and qualified me for this inheritance. Like like Sidna. By the end of her 90-something years and missing a leg, can't walk, has to be taken from bed to chair to the toilet, has to be wheeled around, has to, has to be at, it's dependent on everybody, and yet, strength to endure. That's one thing I always saw about Sidna. Strength to endure with patient joy. If the Lord can make you like that in the next 365 days, you will have a very good year. So let's pray to that end. Father God, we just lift up to you these things. We pray, Lord, we know and we come to you knowing that everything that has happened in this church since it was planted and the, things that, and the churches that were planted before them that planted this church and the churches that were planted before them, Father, all of those things, decisions and things that happened hundreds of years ago that brought us to this moment, all of that was dependent on you. And Lord, for the next hundreds of years, if it be your will that this church survive and be strengthened and flourish and grow and reach this community, Father, I pray that they will look back on the next hundred years and thank you for all that you have done. Not that a man has done, not that an elder council has done, not that individual givers have done, but that you have done. Father, I pray that you will make this a year where people like myself and the people in this church will be drawn into a deeper knowledge of what you want from us. That we'll be given a deeper wisdom to know how to apply what you want in every situation. And that we will walk worthy of you. And Lord, for us, that means obeying you more, knowing you deeper. It means in having the strength to endure. And so God, we ask that. Lord, I don't know what the next 365 days hold for this church. I don't know what's gonna happen in the lives of believers. I certainly didn't expect Sidna to die at the end of this last year. I don't know who's gonna be here next year. I don't know what's gonna be different in my own life next year, Father. And yet, I just pray that for every person in this place, you will give us strength with all power according to your might to endure with patience and joy. And Lord, I pray that a year from now, when we stand, when these people and whoever you have willed stands in this place on January 1st, 2024, that they will look back on this year and give you thanks for all that you have done. Father, we have no concern about this new year because you are the God who has written it. And you're the God who is sovereign. And you're the God who will bring us into your inheritance at the right time. We thank you for that. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.